Hey guys, so I know that we have been talking about the OBG project for a very long time, but I just wanted to highlight that the reason that Nick and I really love this resource is that it really keeps us up to date on everything that's happening in the OBGYN world and the medical world at large. One of the things that I know that we are all concerned about and are hearing about every day in the news is coronavirus and how it's been affecting us as physicians and of course also how it's been affecting our patients. The OBG project has put together great resources summarizing the recommendations from our governing bodies such as ACOG and SMFM, as well as other um, medical governing bodies about COVID-19 and gives us a really good way to keep up to date with all the new information that's coming out. I receive all of my information through text and email, which is the easiest way for me to access that. And OBG First, which is their subscription process, really makes this very easy. If you're a chief resident like Nick and I, this is absolutely free for you for that first year. So definitely go ahead and check out the OBG project and subscribe to OBG First if you find that this is helpful for you. We have really found that this has been a huge resource for us this year. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye, and I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Ding, one of our third-year residents at Brown on Kriags River Coffee. Unfortunately, Nick is on nights and is not able to be with us today. And also, we're going to be practicing some social distancing podcasting. So Jen is at her house, and I'm here, and we'll be doing this all over Skype. Dr. Ding is going to be talking to us today about multifetal gestation. So welcome back, Jen. Awesome. Thanks, Faye. So Jen, what are our learning objectives for today? So our learning objectives today are to be talking a little bit about the incidence of multifetal gestation and what that means for maternal and fetal health and how we diagnose multifetal gestation. Then we'll spend most of the time talking about antepartum management and we'll end a little bit with delivery timing and mode of delivery. All right, so let's start out with kind of the question that we always ask on the show first, which is why do we care about multifetal gestation? How does it affect people? To me, it sounds like, you know, more babies, less time, way more efficiency. <laughs> That's definitely one way to look at it. So why do we care? It's um, definitely an important issue because we do see a rise in multifetal gestation. Currently, there's about 33 per thousand for twins and about 1.5 per thousand for triplets and higher order gestation. And this rise is actually only really coming from the rise in dizygous gestation, whereas the rate of monozygous gestation has stayed actually pretty constant around the world and throughout um, the last uh, 20, 50 years. And the rise in dizygous gestation is thought to be due to two causes. One is an older maternal age at conception. So remember when the maternal age is 35 or greater, she's more likely to release two ovums per cycle. And there's also an increase in the use of assisted reproductive technologies, which we know can lead to a higher number of multifetal gestation. Um, interestingly enough, uh, recent regulations do regulate the number of euploid embryos that can be transferred in any given cycle with the assistance of assisted reproductive technologies. And so regardless of maternal age, if you know that the embryo um, is euploid before transplantation, it's usually limited to just one. 
And the other aspect, so how does this affect maternal and fetal health? Um, patients are usually pretty excited when they find out that they have twins. And as their OBGYNs, you know, we're both obviously excited for our patients because they're excited. But at the same time, um, we spend a good amount of time counseling them on all the things that they're at a higher risk of. So really any complication of pregnancy, if you have two or three or four babies in there, you're more likely to have a higher risk of developing things like preeclampsia with the um, associated increase in abruption and help and things like gestational diabetes, hyperemesis, anemia, hemorrhage and um, increased risk of cesarean delivery and even things like postpartum depression, cholestasis and pups. So I know that these are pretty common in multifetal gestation, but what is the most common maternal and fetal morbidity that comes from all of this? Absolutely. So going back to a previous episode when we talked about preventing preterm birth, um, it's no surprise that the most common delivery outcome, pregnancy outcome is preterm birth and the associated neonatal morbidities for multifetal gestation. And again, if you remember from that episode, there's currently no strategies for preventing spontaneous preterm birth in women with multifetal gestation. Uh, we don't have great evidence for progesterone supplementation for certain clash, for pessary, but there's actually many multi-center randomized control trials um, internationally that are recruiting right now. So maybe we'll see some more data in the coming years. But a rule of thumb, um, a woman with a twin gestation is probably going to deliver around 35, 36 weeks, and a woman with triplet gestation around 32 to 33 weeks, and that's mostly due to spontaneous preterm labor. Interestingly enough, compared to the age-matched singleton fetuses born from a multifetal gestation, even compared to the gestational age-matched preterm singleton neonate, they're more likely to have worse outcomes, including a higher rate of stillbirth, neonatal death, and other outcomes like intraventricular hemorrhage, cerebral palsy, and the like. So let's say you tell your patients all of this, and you know she's excited about her triplets or even her quadruplets, and she becomes very scared about all of these outcomes. And she says, actually, you know, maybe I don't want to have triplets. What are her options? Sometimes patients are interested in hearing about multifetal reduction. So this is um, a intentional effort to reduce the number of viable embryos, such as from triplet gestation to twins, and then occasionally from twins to singleton. This can be technologically tricky, especially because of how the gestational sacs and the placentas are located. And this is definitely not recommended for a monochorionic pair, only for dichorionic pairs, because we don't know what the effects of the termination on the surviving fetus are from the selective reduction of one of the fetuses. So that is an option definitely to discuss with your patients if you're interested. Let's take a step back, uh, Jen, because you've talked about, you know, chorionicity and amionicity. Let's step back and talk a little bit more about the diagnosis of, of multifetal gestations. And also let's talk a little bit more about what that means to be, you know, dichorionic or monochorionic. Definitely. So this goes back to our OB ultrasound episode. Um, and so ultrasound is definitely the best way of diagnosing a multifetal gestation. Traditionally, you know, these women might present with more severe nausea, vomiting of early pregnancy or other pregnancy symptoms. But the best way of diagnosis is definitely with ultrasound. And we're aiming for an ultrasound around 10 to 14 weeks. That's when you're going to have um, your best chance of really seeing the amnesia 
omnianicity and chorionicity um, in a defined manner. And so with this ultrasound, again, you're looking for chorionicity, amnionicity, the fetal number, and the gestational age. Um, and this is really important to determine early on because it really dictates the rest of your antepartum management and your delivery recommendations. Interestingly enough, in spontaneously conceived twins, if there's actually a discordance in the crown rump length, most radiologists would actually date the pregnancy with the larger crown rump length. And this is to not underdiagnose fetal growth restriction for the rest of the pregnancy. Obviously, if the pregnancy was conceived with assisted reproductive technologies, you would want to use the transfer dating or the IUI dating. In terms of what chorionicity and amnionicity actually means, so in my mind, I think of chorionicity as the fetal side of the uteroplacental interface and the amnionicity as the sac with the amniotic fluid. And I picture a big C with a little A that sits inside the big C. So that's how I think about what's on the outside and what's on the inside. A dizygous gestation is what we um, colloquially think of as fraternal twins. So these make up about 70% of all twins, and it's two different sperms, two different eggs, and they're just as genetically related as any other siblings born at different ages. In contrast, for monozygous twin, so these are the other 30% set of twins, this would be one egg, one sperm, and um, their amnionicity is dependent on when the embryo splits. So if the embryo splits within the first three days, you actually can have a dichorionic gestation that's monozygous in terms of the genetic material. The most common set of monozygous twins are the monodi twins or the monochorionic diamniotic twins, and these are the ones that split between four to eight days. And then the monomono twins split after eight days, so between nine to 12 days, and this only accounts for 1% of all chorionic twins. And then if twins split after 13 days, they are likely to be conjoined at some part of the body, and I think of unlucky number 13. And finally, a way to diagnose the chorionicity is to look for the membrane that separates the two sacs. If you see kind of a thicker triangular divide between the two membranes, which is called the Twin Peak sign or the lambda sign, that's a sign of a dichorionic gestation, whereas a T sign where the dividing membrane is quite thin and wiggly and looks like a thin T that's more suggestive of a monochorionic gestation. So I think that's a really good summary of how to think of chorionicity and amnionicity versus zygosity. Dizygous twins, which come from two different sets of sperm and eggs, can only ever be dichorionic, but monozygous twins could be any of the ones that we talked about, dichorionic, monodi, or monomono. Okay, so let's move on from that diagnosis and let's talk about how you would manage your patients who come in with a multifetal gestation. What would you tell them in terms of, you know, how much weight they should gain, aneuploidy screening, for example, or the growth of their babies, um, things like that? Definitely. So this is going to be the meat of our episode. So I'll take these topics one by one. So first of all, the in terms of recommended weight gain, we know that women who have a multifidual gestation should be gaining more weight in pregnancy. So if they're starting out at a normal BMI, we would recommend a weight gain throughout pregnancy of 37 to 54 pounds. And this is in contrast to the 25 to 35 for a singleton gestation. If um, the maternal BMI is starting out in the overweight category, we would recommend a 31 to 50 pound total weight gain throughout pregnancy. And finally, if the maternal BMI is obese to start with, we would recommend 25 to 42 pounds. In terms of aneuploidy screening, um, 
We know that there's inherently an increased risk of aneuploidy in dizygous gestation just because you have two potential opportunities for there to be a genetic anomaly. And serum screening is not as sensitive in a multifetal gestation as it is in a singleton gestation because we know that the analyte levels are averaged between all of the contributing fetuses. So if there was a normal twin and an abnormal twin, there's a chance that the average happens to fall in a normal range, which would be a false negative in that circumstance. You can consider adding a nuchal translucency ultrasound to your serum screening because this can differentiate um, which twin might have an anomaly, especially if you end up with an abnormal serum screening. In multifetal gestation, perhaps the most sensitive test order is the non-invasive prenatal testing, something like cell-free DNA or maternity 21. These tests have been shown to have really high sensitivity and specificity in singleton gestation. And in the K-series and meta-analyses have been shown to have pretty good sensitivity and specificity in multifetal gestation as well. And so we're definitely waiting on larger studies to show that this stands this holds true, but you can definitely consider getting non-invasive prenatal testing for your patients with multifetal gestation. If they want diagnostic testing instead of screening testing, obviously you can still offer chorionic villi sampling and amniocentesis. The loss rate is about 1% to 2% for both of these procedures, slightly higher than in a singleton gestation, but definitely something to consider. Okay, so just to kind of review that, Jen, it sounds like, so overall the risk of each twin within the pregnancy still has the same risk of having aneuploidy. However, the overall pregnancy for the mom, there's an increased risk of aneuploidy just because there are two pregnancies, essentially. Does that sound about right for dizygous gestations? Exactly. Okay. That's a great summary. Okay. So we talked a little bit about you know maternal weight gain, but you said before that twins, triplets, et cetera, are at higher risk of having fetal growth restrictions. So let's talk a little bit more about how we can diagnose that and how we track the growth of multifetal gestations. Definitely. So there used to be a time when we had, instead of the singleton growth curve, there were twin growth curves. But now we actually just use a singleton growth curve um, for all pregnancies because the specialized ones didn't really change any delivery outcomes. And we know that um, compared to a singleton fetus, those that belong in a multifetal gestation are mostly on track until about 30 weeks. And that's when their growth tends to slow down, which is why for these pregnancies, they tend to get serial growth ultrasounds in order to diagnose any fetal growth restriction and then obviously start monitoring for the complications that could develop subsequently you always want to start with an anatomy ultrasound, usually around 18 to 22 weeks. But given that there is an increased risk of congenital anomalies in these pregnancies, especially for monozygous twins, it may be reasonable to start with a level two ultrasound instead of a level one ultrasound to be followed with a level two if there are anomalies that are found. Monozygous twins, not only do they have a higher rate of anomalies, these anomalies sometimes tend to be cardiac in nature, so a lot of MFMs will also get fetal echoes for these twins as well. 
And then typically growth ultrasounds are done every three to four weeks and we tend to measure a percent discordance. So that's usually the EFW of the larger twin minus the EFW of the smaller twin divided by EFW of the larger twin. And if this discordance ends up being greater than 20%, that could be a sign of developing selective fetal growth restriction. And so that might prompt even more uh, frequent serial growth ultrasounds. That's for dichorionic twins, whereas for monochorionic twins, they get even more specialized attention because they are at a risk for something called twin-twin transfusion syndrome, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. And so for monochorionic twins, we tend to do growth ultrasounds every two to three weeks after their anatomy ultrasound compared to the every three to four weeks for dichorionic twins. Now you... Um hinted a little bit at twin-twin transfusion syndrome. So can you um, talk a little bit more about that and all the other strange acronyms that we have like TAPS and TRAP and all of those things? Yes, there's definitely many, many acronyms. Twin-twin transfusion is probably the most common of these complications and we see these in monochorionic gestation. And broadly speaking, it's where the arteriovenous connections or sometimes arterio-arterio or venous-venous connections result in an unequal vascular sharing between the two twins. And this basically creates an unequal volume system where one twin basically is the donor twin and another twin, the other twin is the recipient twin. And we diagnose twin twin transfusion syndrome and monitor the progression of the severity of the disease with the Quintero staging system. So to review stage one, you would see oligohydramnios and polyhydramnios. And no matter what stage, you definitely always need oli-poly to twin twin transfusion syndrome. The oligohydramnios would be noted in the donor twin, whereas the polyhydramnios would be noted in the recipient twin. In stage two of the Quintero staging system, the donor twin would be noted to have an absent bladder because, again, the donor twin's really perfusing and sending all of the volume to the recipient twin. And then in stage three, you would start to have abnormal Doppler findings. So this could be in the umbilical artery, the ductus venosus, or the umbilical vein. Stage four, you would see high drops of the recipient twin because it's so volume overloaded from all the fluid from the donor twin. And then stage five would be unfortunately the death of one or both twins. These stages can remain stable if they're diagnosed, sometimes regress or um, more frequently progress. And the progression can be actually quite rapid. In general, the earlier the diagnosis for twin-twin transfusion, the more severe the disease. So if someone's diagnosed in the mid or early second trimester versus the late second trimester, the earlier the diagnosis is usually poor, the prognosis. And going back to when we were talking about our aneuploidy screening, if there's an increased nuchal translucency, that actually can sometimes be a really early sign of twin-twin transfusion syndrome because it could already be a sign of that fetus becoming volume overloaded even before any of the other signs were to manifest. The treatment of twin-twin transfusion syndrome would be fetoscopic laser ablation of the anastomoses. And then sometimes you could do amnioreduction of the polyhydrate amnios twin, especially if mom is very symptomatic from a dyspneic perspective. After fetoscopic laser ablation, you would definitely want to monitor these twins with weekly AFIs and growth scans as appropriate. And a lot of MFMs would perform weekly BPPs after 30 weeks.
So TTTS is the most common of these things that can happen with more monochorionic gestations. But what about those other things like TAPS and TRAP? What are those? TAPS is much less common and it stands for twin anemia polycythemia sequence. And this is a version of twin-twin transfusion syndrome where you still do have one twin transfusing the other twin essentially, but it happens very, very slowly through very small blood vessels. And so this is typically diagnosed with MCA Dopplers where one twin will have MCA Dopplers greater than 1.5 multiple of the median and the other one would be less than 1.0 multiples of the median. And sometimes this can be a sequelae of twin-twin transfusion after a fetoscopic laser procedure. Other really rare things you might hear about but probably won't see very often clinically would be things like TRAP and a cardiac twin. Um, TRAP stands for twin reversal arterial perfusion and in terms of an a cardiac twin you actually have one twin that doesn't have a head or heart but stays living because the other pump twin continues to perfuse the acardiac twin. Unfortunately, the pump twin can then develop high output heart failure and this has a 50% mortality rate in the pump twin, so it's a it's a very unfortunate circumstance. Um so Jen, let's step away from the monodi twins for a second and talk about the monomono twins. What are some problems that can happen with them? So for a mono-mono twin, so this is one big sac with two twins floating around with their own umbilical cords sharing one placenta. So everything we talked about earlier with twin-twin transfusion syndrome can happen in a monochorionic, monoamniotic pair um, because they are, again, sharing one placenta. But what most people are really scared about with these pregnancies is the chance of cord entanglement or cord accident because those twins floating around, who knows what kind of configuration they could get up to. And the really scary thing about that is, you know, if you were to have a cord accident, the possibility of a stillbirth and the possibility of a stillbirth happening very quickly before it's diagnosed and acted upon um, is definitely the thought in the back of every MFM's head. And so antepartum management for monomono twins, it's really hard to agree upon because this complication isn't something that happens gradually. And so some institutions will do daily NSTs as an outpatient. Some institutions might hospitalize patients and keep them inpatient, but there's really no consensus in terms of what might lead to the best outcome. So I know, you know, this is not the outcome that we want, but you did mention that there is the possibility of one twin passing away either because of a cord accident or because of complications from TTTS or TRAP or TAPS. What happens in a monochorionic uh, gestation if one of the twin um, passes away? In the first trimester, at least, a spontaneous reduction or a vanishing twin syndrome is actually quite common. So about 36% in the first trimester for twins and then even higher for higher order multiples. If someone makes it to the second trimester, this um, rate does go down, but still at a fairly significant percentage. So there's about a 5% loss rate for twins in the second trimester and about a 17% loss rate for at least one of the fetuses for a triplet gestation or higher order multiple. If it is a monochorionic set, we mentioned earlier that the stillbirth may imply that there could be neurologic deficits in the surviving twin because it is a connected vascular system. And so if one twin were to demise, it 
automatically becomes this low pressure system where the surviving twin could then effectively exsanguinate or become so anemic, perfusing the demise twin that the surviving twin could have many strokes and neurologic injuries. So these are all things to counsel your patients on in terms of what to expect with the surviving twin. But most of the time we recommend expectant management. We don't recommend obviously delivering for the sake of the demise twin, although obviously this is an extremely hard conversation to have with mom. All right. So let's say, you know, your um, patient makes it, has no real complications from her twin pregnancy, but at 32 weeks starts to contract. Is there anything we could have done to prevent preterm labor and how do we manage preterm labor? Right. So if you make it, you know, to the late second, early third trimester, this is when you really want to give good preterm labor precautions to your patients. Um, if they're asymptomatic, then obviously, you know, the most you would do is counseling on the signs and symptoms of preterm labor. Because again, we talked about how if there's no effective interventions, then it doesn't make sense to screen patients unless obviously you have an effective intervention to offer if they screen positive. If someone has spontaneous preterm labor, um, our management is fairly similar to preterm labor for singleton gestation. So a short uh, course of tocolytics in order to administer betamethasone would be entirely reasonable. Some of the trials that evaluated the efficacy of betamethasone for under 34-week gestation did include women with multiple gestations, so they were some of the women included in those trials. And similarly, women with multifetal gestation are eligible for rescue steroids, and so if they're at risk of delivering within seven days and their most recent course of betamethasone was at least seven days prior, um, they are eligible for rescue steroids as well. In terms of ALP steroids um, or late preterm steroids, they, um, the original trial did not include women with multifetal gestation. However, at least at our institution, we extrapolate the benefits of ALPS betamethasone and we do give ALP steroids to women with multifetal gestation in the late preterm period. There's currently a multi-center randomized control trial enrolling out of Seoul, Korea called the ACT twin trial that's attempting to answer this question. So we look forward to their results. Um, and again, don't forget about magnesium for neuroprotection for women with threatened preterm labor under 32 weeks, regardless of fetal number. All right. So we've talked about preterm labor. Let's say your twins get to term or in some cases, they don't get to term, but it's time to deliver them. When should we be delivering twins? So in general, if you manage to have an uncomplicated dichorionic gestation, so this is a gestation where the discordance is not greater than 20%, where mom doesn't have superimposed preeclampsia and gestational diabetes, then we recommend delivery no later than the 38th week. And if mom is a candidate for vaginal delivery, which means if the presenting twin is vertex, um, then it would definitely be recommended um, or at least to discuss with mom the benefits of attempting to have a vaginal delivery. And this also includes TOLAC candidates. So even with one prior C-section, women can definitely attempt to have a vaginal delivery with twins assuming that twin A or the presenting twin is vertex. Um, and talking to some MFMs, it seems like a starting presentation of twin A being vertex and twin B being breech is actually for some um, more favorable than a vertex-vertex presentation just because 
the twin breach extraction can be a more controlled scenario than um, keeping twin B vertex after A has delivered. For monochorionic gestation, so the monodi um, twins, we recommend delivery between 34 weeks to 37 and 6, depending on, obviously, if there's any fetal growth restriction, twin-twin transfusion, any other complications. And then for mono-mono twins, um, definitely recommend delivery by C-section because we definitely wouldn't want any cord accidents that happen right when the babies are being born. Um, and the C-section should be scheduled usually between 32 to 34 weeks. All right. I think that brings us to the end of our episode, Jen. Do you have anything else to add? That was a lot of information, but hopefully all helpful information. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Jen, for coming onto our podcast and talking to us about multifetal gestation. Um, so once again, this is Faye, and this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. If you want to support us on the show in exchange for some shout-outs or some cool swag, head on over to Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. For all adjunct learning materials, go ahead and go onto our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a correction for this or any of our previous episodes, or you want to just send us a shout out or some love, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.